I'd like to invite you to come have a seat. We're going to get started. <coughs> Excuse me. We have a lot to cover today, so we're going we're gonna to jump in. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We are really um, honored that uh, you would uh, come on a Sunday morning to worship with us, especially if you're a guest. We're really glad that you're here this morning. We're continuing on in our series, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been doing all summer. Um, we're going to continue to do that today. So I'm going to start by reading the text that we're going to look at today. It's Matthew 5. And I'll say this, if, uh, if you'd like to follow along in the Bible, that would be awesome. The, the verses will be on the screens, but if you want to hold the Bible, there's nothing wrong with that to be able to do that. And if you want to do that, there are Bibles scattered out throughout the, the room. I think on every other chair, there's a Bible or underneath it. Um, if you don't have one at home, please take that home. That's our gift to you. We think everyone should have a Bible at home to be able to read. So Matthew 5, verse 38. We're going to go through the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, once again, we're uh, thankful so much for your word. Thankful so much for even the lyrics and the songs we've been singing this morning that have truth in them. We thank you for um, you revealing yourself to us so then we can respond to you with worship and with praise and with honor and with glory. And I pray that we continue as we look through this, this passage. Um, I pray that, as always, that we would, um, at least for the next 30 minutes or so, we would submit ourselves to your word, that we would, we would place ourselves underneath it and come with an open posture and ask how would you want to change our minds and our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place. So I pray you would help us do that. Help us do that this morning and change us as a result of looking at your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In 2003, in Florida, the day before Mother's Day, um, two girls, uh, Megan Napier and her friend Lisa Dixon, both really close to their parents, really close to their moms, day before Mother's Day, were killed in an accident by a drunk driver named Eric Smallridge. Smallridge was 24 at the time. He'd been out um, that night at a bar with some friends, thought he was okay to drive home, was two and a half, his blood alcohol levels two and a half times the legal limit, hits the two girls, two 20-year-old girls in the car, sends them into a tree. They are killed instantly. To imagine what the parents were going through. Day before Mother's Day. Uh, Smallridge was sentenced to 22 years in prison for vehicular homicide. And Renee Napier, Megan's mom, the mother of one of the two girls who was killed, um, 
felt justice had been done when he was sentenced to this, this, this uh, to prison time, and devoted her, her the, really the rest of her life to speaking in churches and schools on the dangers of drunk driving. Um, however, God wanted Napier to go further um, in this mission. Shortly after he, uh, Eric gets the sentence, um, she, um, God impresses on her heart to do what seems impossible, right? Um, to forgive Eric, to get, forgive this man for taking the life of her 20-year-old daughter. Um, she followed through on what God was prompting her to do. She contacts Small Ridge in prison, or contacts the prison, sets up a meeting with Eric, and proceeds to forgive him. Forgiving for killing her daughter, 20 years old. How does someone do this? She to imagine, like, take, this, take yourself out, put yourself into the story and imagine this being one of your kids, being your mom or your dad or brother or sister. Could you do this? Someone takes the life of someone you love. A crime. Could you forgive this person? Could you forgive Eric in this situation as Renee did? And this morning, we're going to look at two passages, what are arguably, I think, arguably the, the, the two most difficult passages in the Scripture to live out. They're found back-to-back here on the Sermon on the Mount. I think Jesus connects them here. They're back-to-back on purpose. And the passage is really addressed to sum up how to love someone when loving someone is really, really difficult. And the ask that Jesus is going to make of us today is nearly impossible. And I say nearly because there is one way, only one way, I I believe, to show this kind of love to another person in this kind of situation when things are hard. And the Bible gives us that answer. We're going to look at it this morning. But before we get into these passages and walk through them, we need to remember uh, something really important, right? This this, will be like this ideal kind of be the glasses that we put on this morning to see everything uh, moving forward, how, how we see those things. It's, it's really God's purposes in the world. God's purpose is in the world is to, to lift up and protect his glory. He wants his glory to be made known all throughout the earth. And so our role as followers of him is to see that his, he is glorified and see that his glory is known throughout the earth. And this is primarily, his glory is primarily made known throughout the earth when followers of him, people who say, I believe in you and I follow you, um, joyfully submit to him in obedience through faith and live their life. People see this and they ask questions and begin to want to know more about this God and therefore he gets glory. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we've been talking about. Jesus is flipping things upside down. This is the way it's been, you've been heard. This is the way things are in this world. He flips it and it's intriguing. It's interesting. It's, it's weird in an attractive way. All the things that he's been talking about, that's going to be no different today. So in these two passages, the first is going to deal how to deal with someone in a reactive way, when you're reacting to them. And the second one's going to look at how to love someone in a proactive context. So think reactive, proactive. The first is reactive. Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, once again, Jesus is going back to the Old Testament, recalling a law or a command that God had laid out for them. And this is found primarily, we're not going to read them for the sake of time, but Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19 have some shape or form of this law given. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. 
Now, this law is referred to as the law of retribution. And this law was originally put in place um, to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. In an organized society, this was, this was the law, right? This is how uh, the, the, the people of God were going to be governed. They didn't, the, the law was, this law was put into place to make sure that the punishment didn't fit the crime. And also to curb um, this natural, I think, self-appointed vigilante action that we all tend to want to take when, we're, when something's wrong done, done, done to us. Because if you put yourself in, remember, a situation when you've been done wrong, you don't just want to get back at that person equally for what they've done to you. You always, we always want to take it a step further, right? Like I'm on the road and somebody does something silly to me um, on the road, dumb, I would say, you know, really, it was dumb. So um, they did it to me and I don't just want to kind of do that thing back to them. I want to go a step further, right? Like in my heart, in that split second, I, I want to do something bad to them maybe. I want to like, like pull over and have a talk with them and whatever. Like that's what's going through my mind in that split second when somebody does something wrong. So this law is put into place to curb human nature to some degree and give some order to um, the justice system. And many justice systems around the world have followed um, kind of this guideline that Jesus, or that the Old Testament gives us and Jesus is talking about here. But let's see how Jesus is going to interpret this. But I say to you, so this is what's been said. This is what you've heard. But I say to you, verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, this is an interesting statement, and it's a difficult one to translate into English, okay? Um, and so what the commentators are trying to do here, and, and, and as I've read this week, most commentators think that when that word resist is brought up in the scriptures, it's usually in the context of resisting in an evil way or resisting in an immoral way. So that, that most commentators think this should read, but I say to you, do not resist with evil or in an evil way, the one who is evil, okay? So it's not just resisting that Jesus is saying um, um, to, to not do, but resisting in an evil way. So he's not saying to be passive. He's not saying to be passive. And we'll get into that here a little bit later. But the other thing that I wanna just get out here is that he's not telling the government how they should execute justice, okay? So sometimes this passage is appealed to to talk about how the government should execute justice. Jesus is speaking to citizens of the kingdom that are trying to walk in his ways in the, in the relationships that are happening every day, right? He is not rejecting the government. He's not trying to articulate a teaching on how the government should handle justice. He's not doing it. We see this brought up in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2, um, and those passages teach that God has put the government in place to execute justice and to punish those who do evil, okay? So th those, two, those two passages are ones you can go to, to to look at how the government should be handled. This passage, Jesus is talking to individual citizens of the kingdom. And so as we look and as we move forward, we need to remember that that's the context, okay? So he wants citizens of God's kingdom to respond differently to the, what the, how the world responds in these situations, Saying to be different. I'm flipping things upside down here. I don't want you to respond in a revengeful, hate-filled way. Okay, so this is a teaching on, on, on fighting evil in general. It's not. Now, it's awesome here because Jesus now is going to give us four really short examples of what this looks like. This is really helpful that he does this. And, and a lot of these phrases that he uses here are phrases that we hear in our everyday vernacular, right? These have made it in and you hear these things, okay? So... Let's go through these one by one. 
And this, Jesus is trying to illustrate here. Here's how you approach when evil is done to you. First one, verse, second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, so now it's important to imagine actually physically what's happening here because it's important. So in this culture, a couple of things. Um, to use your left hand in this culture would have been considered inappropriate. Left hands were considered unclean, dirty. When you were doing something that involved germs or something like that, you would use your left hand and you would touch people. You would shake hands. You would hug people with your right hand. Okay. That was part of their culture. Okay. Now, and so backhanded, backhanding someone was also considered um, just something extremely degrading. If you were to backhand someone, that would be like treating them as an animal or a dog. Like you'd backhand a dog. This was used for slaves, people who weren't even considered human in those days. Okay? So now, imagine this. I'm facing you, and this is important to kind of think through this, okay? This is my right cheek, right? And y'all think now, what's your, those of you who have trouble with left and right, I'm going to give you a few seconds. Think of your right here, okay? You're right, okay? Now, if I say, if it says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, if you're going to slap me on this cheek with your right hand, how are you going to do it, right? Like this, right? With your back hand, okay? So it's going to be a backhanded slap if you were going to use your right hand, which would have been appropriate to slap my right cheek, okay? So then as the one who's the victim here, Jesus is saying, I, I turn like this after I get slapped. And then he's saying, give him the left cheek. So what does that look like? I turn and give you the left cheek. Now, what is the easiest way to, to strike someone, if you're still facing me, when my cheek is like this? Are you, with your right hand, you can either go like that, like I'm, I'm mad at you. Like, no, right? You're going, you're going, it's going to be a punch. It's going to be a right cross, or if you're a lefty, a jab, right? Like, it's, you're going to hit somebody in the jaw. Okay, and so what this is important because what Jesus is saying here, he's not just saying, hey, tolerate that slap. Oh, and if you want to turn the, no, he's saying, here's what happens. Like if you, if somebody slaps you, that's degrading. But in that culture, like, hey, that people do that, right? Animals, slaves, but to go and take it a step further, give them your left cheek and take the punch, right? Go a step further. Most commentators think that that's why Jesus is being so descriptive physically here, because he actually wants the, the victim to actually absorb a punch after a slap. Now, one thing this does, and this is the case with all of these, is we're taking this a step further. And when this happens, if people are looking on, now, this is going to show evil for what it really is, right? Like, if somebody slaps you, people will think, oh, maybe, maybe they're a slave. But then if people are looking on and somebody punches you, then it's gone completely too far, right? It's like, now this is violent. This is physical abuse. This is all of those things. And now you've put this person that's, that's actually hitting you in a difficult situation. You put them in an awkward situation by actually like moving further into the suffering, okay? And you, we're gonna see that play out more here. Okay, next one. If anyone would wanna sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now in the Old Testament law, within the court, somebody could sue and take your tunic, okay, which is your, which is basically a shirt, okay, your shirt. So imagine shirt and coat here, shirt and jacket for tunic and cloak, okay. So it was acceptable for someone to sue you for your tunic. It happened all the time in that culture, right? I'm going to take your shirt from you because you did something wrong. What Jesus is saying here, don't, don't just give him your shirt, actually take off your coat or your cloak and give it also. Now, in a courtroom, in a formal setting, 
What's left up top if they've taken your shirt and your tunic? Nothing, right? So then, then it's this spectacle, right? So now, once again, the person who's suing you, you've put them in a really difficult position. So they just took your tunic, and now the evil is so awful that they're actually going to take your coat and leave you borderline naked in, in, this, in this environment, which is, which is crazy, okay? So it's drawing attention to the evil being done. The next one, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Again, part of this culture, a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier could stop a citizen at any time and ask them to carry their stuff one mile. I, I didn't know this before this week. It's part of the deal. But you couldn't ask him to carry it above a mile. They were so generous, the Romans, right? Like, hey, like, don't, don't put too much pressure on him. Don't, don't, take, don't make him take you too far, just a mile, right? But that was the law, right? So what Jesus is getting at here, why it's one mile to two miles, he's saying, hey, when they ask you to take it a mile, just keep walking. And then what's that going to put, let's pretend like it's a Roman soldier. What position is going to put that in? They're going to feel awkward. Now, wait a minute, you, you, don't have, you don't have to do that. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Like, why would you... And so it just, it makes that person speechless. And who knows, you, if you take it two miles there, you may get to have this conversation with the centurion. You may get to talk to him about why you're doing this. God may get glory by your actions in this situation. And the last one is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Um, this is just basically, um, this is the one that's a little bit different. It feels a little out of place, but it's when someone is a begging, someone's begging, a beggar is begging for, for whatever, and you have the ability to give something, and you, you give more than whatever you were planning on giving, okay? So it's just this, the same idea, but a little different context. But with all of these, Jesus is trying to show us, this is radical, right? Like, this is radical ways to live. And the temptation that all of us have is to just kind of write this stuff off, right? write this, dismiss this as hyperbole, like Jesus, you, you really couldn't have meant that, right? Or like this is, oh, Jesus was talking to like the special forces of Christians. Okay, he couldn't really be talking to me because there's no way we can do this. No, he's talking to us. Like this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, just like everything else he's been talking about, right? This is for us. And so there, these passages are saying, do not retaliate with evil. Don't retaliate the way that culture wants us to typically retaliate. And he's not just saying, again, ignore him. Hey, hey, if you walk a mile, just suck it up and do it. And don't complain. You'll be done after a mile. No, it's go the extra mile. Okay, do that extra thing that's going to show the evil for what it is. And you'll actually get a chance to glorify God because the situation just, it's, it's, it's incongruent. Like it's upside down. People are like, what in the world is happening here? Why are we behaving like this? This is what Jesus is wanting us to do in this passage. So loving someone Loving our enemy, loving someone who hurts us is costly, right? It costs us something. Tolerating some, some, someone, yeah, that's costly, but actually doing what Jesus is asking us to do, it, it's going to cost us something. And there's a way we go about doing it and, and, and a how we do it, and we're going to talk about that um, in a little bit. But so let's look at the next passage, okay, that focuses us on proactively how we love someone. That's reactive, so that's when someone does something to you, but this is more of a proactive look. Verse 30, uh, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We have to look at this a little closer because, again, Jesus is quoting here. But notice he said, you have heard that it was said. We have to remember Jesus is not necessarily quoting the Old Testament law verbatim here. He's actually quoting what the present interpretations of that Old Testament law were. 
okay? Because first off, um, hate your enemy is not said anywhere in Scripture. Like, you can Google it, you can do whatever you want to do, whatever search engine, you will not find hate your enemy in Scripture. It's just not there. But obviously, the teaching was a part of that culture. Jesus was saying, you're, you're hearing this, okay? You're hearing that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, okay? And he's going to talk about this here in a minute, but hate your enemy is not in the Scripture. And what also Jesus teaches on later is that he'll add, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say it here, but when he teaches on it later, he actually adds as yourself there, which helps even more specifically define who the neighbor is. Okay? So this is, this once again, is Jesus kind of reinterpreting or taking people back to the original intent of the Old Testament law. Let's look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you, you may be sons of God your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now God's people had bought into this idea that because God loved them, they were his people, they had permission to kind of hate other nations, to hate other people, to, to not love other nations and other people. They were all about Israel and no one else, especially as it related to the Roman government. And we're guilty of this as well, right? Um, there, there are some people in our country who would say that because we're God's, co- God's chosen country, which we're not, but some people think that because of this, it gives us the permission to hate or not love other nations who are made up of fellow image bearers of God. So we kind of use, oh, we're God's people. And so because we're God's people, yeah, we're on God's side. And now we don't have to love people or we can ignore people or we can even hate people that don't look like us or they're from somewhere else. And what Jesus is saying here, it should not be this way with followers of Jesus, period. Like this doesn't give you an excuse to treat people um, the way that they were treating people at the time. And Jesus defines neighbor. He's gonna define neighbor um, later on in, in this book in Matthew as anyone you come across in your daily activities. This is the teaching of the Good Samaritan. Um, it for sure means, and this is for us, it for sure means the people we live next to, like our, our physical neighbors. Um, it means our coworkers, our fellow students, Um, But it also means anyone you come across as you live your day-to-day life. That's who your neighbor is. Anybody that God in his sovereignty has allowed you to cross paths with. This this is your neighbor. So what they were doing, they were changing the definition of neighbor to people that look like them, who dress like them, lived in the same neighborhood they lived in, they, who they act, that acted like him. They said, okay, this is my neighbor, all of these things. So it allowed them to justify their behavior of, oh, I'm loving my neighbor. And they were disregarding and cutting off all the other people because they didn't fit their little box of who their neighbor was. And Jesus is just blowing this up here, just blowing it up. Um, and, and, and he's also here getting other under the skin of the religious leaders. Um, in comparing the righteousness to other people, um, because they were th- they, these people they thought were unrighteous. Okay, Jesus is saying like tax collectors, Gentiles, who the religious leaders would have considered unclean, unrighteous. He's saying even the Gentiles, even tax collectors, love their own. 
Like a tax collector loves another tax collector. That's easy. Gentiles love the, uh, people who, who, are, who are like them. That's easy. He's saying love the people who, who are hard. Love the people that are, are difficult. Okay? And this is the world's economy, right? It's transactional when it comes to love. If we've received love, then we give love. If we've received hate, then we give hate. The world, the, 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 the natural bent of the world is not when someone hates us, we give love. Right? That's not the way it works. Or, or we're kind of neutral until somebody loves us and then we'll love somebody because they've loved us first. And Jesus is saying this is not the way it's supposed to work. It's just this excuse for if somebody hates us, then we can hate them. And this is what God's people were wrestling with at this time. This is why Jesus brings it up. So here's some questions we need to ask ourselves. Beyond today, but I'm just going to throw some out here. Who have, your, who have you given yourself permission to not love? Who have you given your permission, yourself permission to not love? Who have you written off by saying they are not your neighbor? No, they're not my neighbor. I don't need to proactively love them. Does everyone you show love to look like you? Or are they related to you? Another one is, when was the last time you showed love to someone who didn't deserve it? Like in the economy of the world, they didn't deserve that love, but you gave it to them Anyway, okay, Jesus is trying to point them back to the law to show them that these laws were put in place. These laws that I'm talking about were put in place to make us want to be more like God, to want us to see who God's like, see the character of God and aspire to live like that. There was this promise that things would go well for us. We would experience freedom and joy if we attempted and aspired to live like God, love like God loves and live like God would live. Um, these laws aren't given so you could find workarounds and find loopholes and find reasons to not obey God. That's not why the law was given. And Jesus is trying to show them that. So it mentions here God the Father. So one thing we need to ask is what is God the Father like? That's what we're to aspire to be like in our love and how we treat people. God shows his love towards everyone. And this is the point of verse 45. Verse 45 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So as people who were wrestling through this hear this, they're saying, be like your father in heaven. And oh, by the way, Jesus says, your father sends rain for everyone. You're, you're, God, God is gracious towards everyone. This is what theologians call common grace. It's common grace. And I would say for those of you here, maybe don't believe in God or don't follow. I believe that every gift you have, every breath you take, every good gift that you've received comes from the God of the Bible. That's the way, and that's called common grace. And so for, for religious folk, Jesus is trying to show them that God loves everyone to some degree. Like even the unrighteous get the rain that helps them grow the crops, that helps them survive and helps them make money. God does that. So if we're to be like God, if our posture is to reflect the heavenly father, then we should show grace. We should love everyone. This should be our posture. Let's keep reading. Verse 48. You therefore, there's that therefore where it's a big word. It's important. We'll come back to it. Must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay. So this verse here serves as the bookend for not just the passage we just read, but really the six previous um, teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. So for the last six weeks, the ones we've been going through week after week after week, this verse 
sums up all of those teachings. It goes all the way back to verse 21, I believe. So this is kind of the cap for the previous 30 or so verses. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, just a reminder Jesus gives us to tie this all up. Now, let's talk about this verse. This is, this is a really important verse if it's a sum, okay? You must be perfect. That word perfect there, um, the, 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 the original language, the word there is teleos. Okay, teleos. That word actually means wholeness or being whole. Now, if you read this, like it literally, it sounds kind of strange, which is why the English translators choose perfect. But if you say, you're, you therefore must be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Like we can understand, like, yeah, that's a little strange. Um, so they changed it to perfect to help it read better. But the actual, the better word for it is, is whole. Okay, wholeness, congruency. We talked a little bit about this last week. All different parts of our body line up. We're not trying to be one person here and one person here. We're not trying to put masks on to to trick people or to manipulate people, right? Like we are who we are in all parts of our life, from our head to our heart to how we live, okay? Now, as your heavenly father is perfect, you think about the the previous six um, teachings that Jesus has done. Listen, it's God does not murder and is forgiving. God is faithful to his marriage covenant with his people. God is honest and keeps his covenant oaths. God forgives and gives to gives even to those who dishonor him. God loves his enemies. So God is the perfect example and Jesus is the is the human reflection of God. He is the perfect one. He is the one who's who is whole. He is the one who lived with perfect congruence, perfect wholeness. Okay, And so when we think about this idea of wholeness, because that's what the calling of the whole Sermon on the Mount, I think, is, is to, is to this wholeness, is to our beliefs match up with our, 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 what we feel, and our beliefs and, and what we feel match up with how we live. And we don't say one thing and live another way. Okay, this is what Jesus is addressing this whole time. And a, a helpful teaching on this is found when Jesus unpacks the two great commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think he mentions those four things to say this is, this is how you love God in totality. And these four things line up and are consistent. And then obviously the second one, which is, we're talking about it today, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so another way to define wholeness is loving God consistently in all of these areas, Right? You can even say it a little bit. It's a little bit cleaner if you say head, heart, and hands. That's the way I like to think about it sometimes. And so here are some examples. You can't say that you're a Christian because you affirm some ideas of God and how God saves us and, and how God has loved us. Say, God has loved me, therefore my, I'm a Christian, and not love your enemies. Like, you can't do that. That's not being whole. It's not being congruent. What you say and what you believe and what you think about doesn't match up with how you live. That would, be, that would not be wholeness, okay? Or it can mean that you, you know you should love someone, right? You know that, you see the scriptures, but you just don't feel like it. Nah, my heart's just not in it. I'm just, I don't feel like loving them, and you choose not to love them. Again, that's your mind, what you believe is not lining up with how you feel, and it's not, it's not changing the way you live. Okay, here's one. It also means that you're not a, uh, this, 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 this lion of justice on social media, like really railing against whatever the, the, the newest justice issue is, but you don't even know your next door neighbor. Like you, you can type something on a keyboard on Twitter and send it off and be just this gorilla behind a keyboard, but you won't walk across the street or across your grass to know your neighbor and their needs. It's consistent. You can't say one, not do the other. Or you can be a person who's about causes, who's about justice and wants to love the broken. And that's awesome. And that's something we should do. 
But if you're that kind of person, that's what you live for, but you, you don't spend silence and solitude with the Bible open and you haven't done that in weeks, then for what cause are you doing those things for? For whose glory and honor are you truly fighting these causes if you don't know the God of the Bible or you don't spend any time with him, okay? So these are some examples that we all struggle with, right? We all lean in one of these directions, I think, but we just need to be aware that all of this Sermon on the Mount stuff is talking about wholeness. It's talking about do things match up? Do what we hear, do what we follow line up with the teachings of the scriptures? All of those things. So as we're children of God, we're to imitate the Father, okay? The Father is whole. Okay? And we can't do this perfectly. That's why we want to be careful with that transla- translation of being perfect as our Father is perfect, right? It's being whole. Okay? We're not going to be perfect. But through the Holy Spirit that empowers those who have faith, we can live a life that is marked by love, by loving our neighbor, by being whole in these areas. We can live a life that is marked by that. Now, I want to return to the story I, start- I, sh- I started at the beginning. Renee Napier, okay, the mom of the girl um, who, was, who was killed by the drunk driver. Um, so Renee, the mom, forgives Eric, the, 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 the man in prison. Um, and shortly after she forgave him, he gave his life to Jesus. He repented, repented of what he had done and gave his life to Jesus in prison. And then as a result of her grace shown towards him and people watching this, many people, she's talked about in interviews, gave their lives to Jesus in her family because they could not believe the love that she showed him. It was mind-boggling. It was otherworldly, um, the way she did that. And she, she, then, she went on behalf, then she went to the court and petitioned on Eric's behalf to cut the sentence from 22 down to 11 years so he could get out and actually have a lot of his life left to live. And the court obliged her. They did that. And after Eric was released, he was, he was a, a, a champion of Jesus in the prison after he was converted. And then once he got out, he, he followed um, uh, Renee around on her, her speaking tours and spoke with her. They became this teaching team of she was warning people of the dangers of drunk driving. And he was right there to tell the story. And he, and he was like, yeah. And so he actually followed her and followed in her footsteps and they made a team together. Now, here's what Renee says about this. This is, this is a quote before she went to forgive him, but after they um, had put him in prison. We will continue to pray for him and his family. None of us want to see him um, be a lost, lost as, uh, according to God. Philip, her husband, challenged him not to be another life lost. My family hopes he will be able to speak to others about the dangers of driving under the influence. Perhaps this is how God can be glorified, especially if other lives are saved. And then Eric, after he had received forgiveness from Renee, says this, I don't know if I could do it myself if, I, if it were my kid. Like if my kid would have gotten murdered, I don't know if I could have forgiven that person. But that's why it's just so amazing. To me, the Napiers define Christianity. Like he saw it. He, he was like, this, this does not make sense. I, I want to know more about this God that they're talking about. And he gave his life to Jesus. This is, falls right along the lines with Romans 12, 20 through 21. This is Paul after writing this, this, this huge theological letter, right? The first 11 verses, 11 chapters of Romans, just full of theology. And then as a part of, of chapter 12 here, Paul says this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will, be, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Obviously, that's not literally what's happening. You just told him not to repay evil, evil. But it will feel to the person like there are burning coals, like there's something going on here, and it will cause them to, to just be in question about how is this person able to do this. So Paul here is saying, overcome evil with good, and you're more likely, I think, to see that person change and God receive glory. This is one of the primary ways the kingdom becomes visible to those who don't believe. The world needs more Christians who are strong and courageous, who will turn the other cheek, and to love our enemies um, like we would want ourselves to be loved, like we love ourselves. Now, I want to be clear again. The Bible is not saying we should be doormats. It's not saying we should be doormats. Jesus wasn't a weakling who never resisted. Loving someone who doesn't deserve it is hard. It's a hard thing to do. A doormat just sits there and takes it and does nothing in response. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Some of the greatest social movements in history um, have been led by people with this attitude. They have shown peaceful resistance in the face of evil. They have Nelson Mandela in South Africa, Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, who she spent 15 years in house arrest in Burma resisting on on behalf of democracy. And she is now a politician in Burma since she's been released from prison. You have Gandhi in India. You have Rosa Parks and MLK in our country's civil rights movement. And nobody would say, looking back at history, that these people are doormats. Like, nobody would say that, right? Like, oh, MLK was just a doormat that didn't get anything done. No. Like, he was courageous, but the way he went about it was the way of Jesus. It was, it was Jesus' ethic. And most of the people I just mentioned were actually, if you look at their writings, Gandhi and Mandela, although not followers of Jesus, were heavily influenced by the ethics of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in their writings. They read the Sermon on the Mount, and they were struck by it. It felt like they, this is the way. This is the way to change. Here's a quote from MLK. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This was MLK. This is echoing Peter, one of the earliest um, leaders in the church. For this is a gracious thing. Grace meaning God-given, God-enabled. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here's the deal. There's, there's, to close here, there's two things I think we need to remember and then two things I think we need to do. Two things to remember. First, we need to remember the gospel. We have to remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovable, he loved us. When we were rebellious, he came for us. We didn't deserve it. We weren't good. And the people that we're trying to love, the difficult people, we were a thousand times more difficult and rebellious and hateful than those people are. And yet God showed us grace. We were hard-hearted in God's eyes and he showed us grace. If you have faith in Jesus and you're here this morning, you've received God's love. God has loved you when you were unlovable. So now we need to show that kind of love towards others. And then here's another part of the gospel that we often forget that we have to remember. The gospel is also the good news that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. And if you have faith in him, he gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower, to live out what Jesus is calling us to do. We receive the power from the spirit and we live the life that Jesus is is describing 
in these passages and point to, do we need help? We need some help to live this kind of life because this is almost impossible. It's not impossible, almost impossible. It is impossible without the spirit of God living inside of us. So remembering the gospel in the past, how God has loved us and remembering that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of those who would believe. Now, two things to do. One, this week, I want you to go home and, and, and spend time with Jesus, right? And in, in that time, be dependent. Realize how dependent you are on his grace and his mercy and the spirit every moment of your day. This is hard for us who have Christians been around for a while. We just kind of, we, we get, maybe we do the quiet time and we just, we move on throughout our day and kind of live under our own strength and power. Every moment of the day, we are dependent on, upon his spirit to love, especially in these kind of contexts. So whatever we need to do, I think of a waterfall example, like the waterfall is a, the spirit just running over. And the work we do in this situation is to get under the waterfall, right? We can't sit there and pass and just be like, oh, I'm, not, I'm really not going to do anything. I just hope the spirit empowers me to love. It's not the way it usually works. It's pursuing Jesus, knowing God the Father, knowing the heart of God, reading some of these passages, asking God to give you the love, give you the strength, give you the spirit to be able to live like this. That's putting ourselves under the waterfall and then allowing the spirit to do his work in our day-to-day lives. So one, do that. Be dependent. Spend time with Jesus. Number two, find someone to love. Find someone to love this week that you haven't loved before. Not your spouse, not your roommate. Find someone this week that, it's, that you love and it's not transactional. Maybe it is an enemy. Maybe it's someone that does you harm. But for sure, if you're just kind of neutral to people, they don't do anything to you, maybe it's a stranger. There's nothing that they deserve to be loved that way. Love them. See how it feels. Write it down. Journal about it. Ask God to help you understand how that interaction went. And it probably went well. It probably will feel good. It may be a little awkward, but afterwards, I'm guessing you'll experience a little bit more of the Holy Spirit as a result of stepping out and actually loving someone that it it wasn't in a transactional way. Let's pray. Father, what a hard passage. So we just pray that your spirit would help us. Help, help us live these kind of lives that are marked by love. Most of us know as we have loved people, even those who have harmed us, there's something about it that feels good, that feels right. There's something that's redeeming about loving people. Um, and I, so I pray that you would help us be the kind of people who love when we're not provoked to love. Maybe we're provoked to hate. We want to hate, but we love. Maybe we ignore or we're neutral, but we love. So help us, Jesus. Help us do this. And I pray that we would see the beauty and the, the wonder and, and the, the, the majesty of your grace and your mercy. And that our minds would dwell on that and reflect on that. That while we were yet sinners, while we were yet hateful, while we were yet enemies, while we hated you and wanted nothing to do with you and despised you, you loved us. You sent your only son on our behalf. Those kinds of people you love by sending your only son. What grace and what mercy that you've shown us. I pray that would change who we are and change the way we love people. It's in your son's name we pray.